Hello and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Sports. My name is Michael Brazil, and this is a show where we get to talk about sports. We get to talk about business. We get to talk about everything in between. Wherever you're listening, wherever you're watching, do what you're supposed to do. Subscribe, click like, whatever. You know what you're supposed to do at this point. But today, incredible guest, Mike Tannenbaum, former GM of the New York Jets, current ESPN analyst, and most importantly, father of two. Mike, how you doing today, man? I'm doing great, Michael. How you doing? It's a it's a good day to be alive, as I told you before. Sun is shining. It's finally not 90 degrees here anymore up in the... Uh, which is kind of nice. I was outside. I had a beautiful fire last night with my wife. Absolutely fantastic. It doesn't get any better than early fall. But Mike, enough about me. I want to talk about you, man. I'm so excited to have you on. The first question I have for everybody on the For the Love of Sports podcast is, why do you love sports so much? There's a winner and there's a loser. Ah. And I'm just a competitive guy. And there's a reason you keep score. And there's nothing better than walking into a building with people that are like-minded, like-driven, and want to beat the opponent. And you keep score. And there's a winner and there's a loser. And, and, you know, sometimes, candidly, I wish I wasn't always wired that way. Um, I'm going to go – I came out of the womb that way. I'm going to go to the grave that way. Um, I'm just hardwired to compete. If we're keeping score, I want to win. And and the thing about sports, right, is, as you said, there's a winner and there's a loser. You're never going to be the winner every time. It's never going to happen. How did you, I guess, at what point in your life was it something that came from your parents? Was it something that you developed over time that you not became okay with failure, but understood that that was going to happen pretty much throughout your entire career? Yeah, I use it as a force multiplier to this day. Um, anytime I get an opportunity to do something, uh, I'm just hardwired, Michael, to focus on what I could have done better, different, be better the next time feel good for about 10 seconds about the accomplishment and then try to drive myself to get an, a better off the next time around. That's incredible, man. I mean, it's just something that you have to do, especially in sports. And, and one thing that I do want to talk about, especially is sports business too, right? As you're saying, there's a winner, there's a loser in sports. That's going to happen in the business side of things as well. And as I said, we have a lot of college kids listening, high school kids, people that want to break into the sports industry. And one thing that's really interesting is sports are always on. Right. On Sundays, when I'm watching, when other people are watching, you're doing your job or you're watching the fruits of your job as an NFL GM. How did you get into the sports side or the business side of sports and also, again, understand that there's that winner and loser mentality, even on that side of the industry? Yeah, I think it's all the same. I know we have a lot of students that are listening to this and want to get in. And I'm fortunate uh, I'm on the faculty at Columbia University. Uh, I have a foundation to help students get uh, their foot in the door and help pay their wages named after my parents. It all comes down to a couple of very fundamental principles, which is create value. Like what can you do to help the person you report to be better at their job? And when you do that, you become indispensable. So be the first person in the last to leave, say yes. And they say yes with a smile. When you meet or see the person you're working for is expectations. That's how you have sustainability. And it's about a mindset of you're trying to actually have a career, not get a job. And though it's a meaningful but subtle difference about you want to meet people, you want to put yourself in the position where others are going to conferences or reading trade papers where you can publish articles. Um, it's about creating value. It always has been and it always will be. 
I love that. So I actually just spoke with Syracuse University a couple of days ago and went over that exact same topic, creating value, making sure that you're more interested than interesting, right? A good friend of mine, David Meltzer, always told me that. Make sure that you're helping other people. And I think adding value is absolutely incredible. It's the best way to do things. It's also why I love doing this because I'm really interested in what you do. So I get to ask you a bunch of questions. So not that bad, right? I like Meltzer too, fellow Tulane guy. Very nice. Yeah, he's a good friend of mine. I speak to him. haven't spoken to him recently, uh, but he's been a, a huge, huge help in my business and what I've been able to build and what I've been able to do. So he's a good... We actually had a radio show on SiriusXM for a little while, which was kind of fun. So those were uh, those were the days, man. So what are... what are, You know, obviously, you're very well-versed in this topic. So again, having a lot of students listening in, I know... It's funny. Every time I speak to a class, every time I speak to any type of student body... What do people want to do? They want to be GM of their their favorite football team or they want to be an agent because they love their favorite football players, right? So I'm kind of curious, what are just some of those first steps, right? Like obviously, as you said, add value every step of the way. So that's great. But what are some of the things that you've seen that people have done correctly when trying to break into the sports business universe, especially from that front office GM agent side of the business? Yeah, so volunteer, uh, you want to figure out like, how the quickest and easiest way it is for you to create value. So if you could get experience by volunteering your time, now you're starting to separate yourself. Uh, we started a football think tank called the 33rd team. We have a site called 33rdteam.com and we have tons of students that work with us. Eight of them have gone on to NFL jobs um, and they get real experience working for us, writing scouting reports, uh, analyzing contracts. Uh, some want to go into social media so it's a way for them to get meaningful experience and get their foot in the door. And in our case, we're lucky because we have 512 years of experience of former coaches that um, mentor these students so they can get meaningful experience with people that have actually done the jobs. What a number touting 512 years. That's uh, that's definitely a pretty solid number right there. I like that. And that was 33rdteam.com? Yes, sir. All right, good. We want to shout that out. Make sure people are listening, paying attention and getting out there. And I just think it's really important for students to understand that, right? It's always something that I'm preaching. Hey, do something that sets you apart, right? Everybody, everybody's going to have a solid GPA. Everyone's going to volunteer somewhere at the soup kitchen. Everybody's got a cool uncle that works for Bank of America, right? It's not like that difficult. Everybody's going to have that. You're going to have to do something that completely sets you apart in an industry where the supply is extremely high and the demand is extremely high, something like this, applying, helping out, working with people like yourself and some of the other coaches, that is going to be something that sets people apart. And I think one thing that I like doing is setting myself apart, right? I always try and see what successful people are doing. If they're doing it, it can't hurt for me at least to try it. So I'm kind of curious. You've been successful. You've done some really cool things. Do you have a morning routine? Do you have an evening routine? Are there certain things during the day that you try and make sure, okay, I'm checking this box, this box that you have seen have helped exponentially? I mean, as we know, David Meltzer, minimum, right? Try and do certain things every single day. Do you have anything like that that you're trying to do for yourself every day? Well, I wish I could tell you, like, I had a, a great formal structure. You know, there's a gentleman named Kevin Eastman, who was a longtime NBA head coach, coached many, many Hall of Famers, including the late, great Kobe Bryant. You know, he gets up every morning at like five and reads for two hours a day. I, I wish I could say I do that. I do get up early. I work out first thing, try to get that in the bank. Um, I try to walk and listen to podcasts because that allows me to kind of clear my mind. Uh, I'm like very driven by like to-do lists. And then I, you know, one of the things that like I've been very fortunate, I would say is um, try to return every text email. And I was the youngest GM in the NFL and – I was an unpaid intern 
And I really never try to change that mindset. And I can tell you some of the opportunities I've gotten is because I was really kind to people. And, you know, when you give, like, and give unconditionally, I, I just can't tell you, like, how many times six months, six years later, like, it comes back. And you can disagree with people. I've had tons of disagreements and negotiations. But return or recall, return or retext, it, it's not that hard. And uh, you never know where to lead. Be kind, unconditionally. You do listen to David Meltzer a lot. I like that. That's some good stuff, right? And one of my favorite quotes from him is always, don't do business with dicks. It's like a pretty easy way to live your life, right? If someone, you don't like working with someone, why are you working with them? It's not going to help you. It's not going to help them. It's not going to be very good at all. And so you said you were the, the youngest GM in the NFL. So let's get into that. Former GM of the New York Jets. So I'm personally a Giants fan. But I'm also a Mets fan, so I kind of get that depression and, you know, the unfortunateness of, uh, of New York through my Mets rather than through the Jets, which has been really nice. So I'm kind of curious, right? You have an awesome story with Bill Parcells. You've told it a million times. I don't need you to tell it here. But what are some of the things that set you apart, right? You're the youngest. You, you, you get this incredible opportunity with Bill Parcells. What, what was on your resume? What is it about your personality? What are the attributes that you think you had, especially back then, that allowed someone like Bill Parcells to say, hey, I need this guy. I will do what I have to do to get him. Yeah, I'd say luck had a lot to do with it. So I worked for a year and a half for free while I was in law school at Tulane when the salary cap first started back in the 93, 94. And I wrote a book when, uh, as I graduated law school, like how to basically like build a team uh, as efficiently as possible. I sent out to every head coach and GM in the league and, Coach Belichick hired me in Cleveland. So it was really about like creating value, making meaningful recommendations. You know, up until that point, Michael, a lot of people that worked in the NFL were former coaches and players. And literally overnight, like that population changed to JDs, MBA. So I was really at the right place at the right time. And then Coach Belichick recommended me to Coach Parcells. And that's really how it happened. And once I got my foot in the door, I just said to myself, like, you know, this is it. I have this crazy dream and um, I would not recommend this to the audience, but I literally, I was in the building like every day for four years and I just felt like I was single and nothing else mattered. Like literally, I know like it sounds like an exaggeration, like nothing else mattered, but nothing else mattered. Like I, I sort of made a vow, like if he was in the building, I was in the building. And he seemed like the kind of guy that was always in the building, I'm assuming, right? Either his or his presence was. Like, yo, yeah, that's very good. That's very good. And what is it? Like, I'm always curious, right? Like you hear stories now of coaches, you know, Sean Payton still calls Bill Parcells on what seems like a daily basis, right? You hear that report. What is it about Bill Parcells that has made him timeless in a sport that is ever changing? That is a great question. Thanks. I would say it goes back to the way he was raised. He was raised in an environment where um, he had an Irish mother, Italian father. He had an African-American woman who was like the housekeeper who he told every day that he loved her. So he grew up in an environment in Northern New Jersey. That was truly like, to me, what's like the best about our country. Like when we talk about melting pot, like, you know, black, white, Asian, Jewish, you know, all across the board. And, he, he was always about like the ultimate meritocracy and it started from, like how he was raised. And he told me a lot of stories about that. You know, his dad was like a labor negotiator. Uh, his mom was highly confrontational and he, he learned his view of confrontation was one of like, 
healthy, productive, clearing the air, and like confrontation is good. Like I think a lot of people connotate the word confrontation. Like there's like when you hear it, like a lot of people like cringe and yeah, say, oh, negative. Yeah, yeah, and 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 that was not him at all. Like he was a confrontational person, and candidly, it still is. I'll tell a very funny story in a second, and. But he does it in a way where it's about like the truth and it's about like getting it right and and no other bullshit matters. So, you know, we could talking about like how to market a podcast. We could be talking about how to defend, you know, Tom Brady. It's all the same thing. Like, what's the best answer here, regardless of where it comes from? I love that. And I think that's really important, right? That is it's such a true thing. When you say the word confrontation, it always has that very negative connotation to it. When in reality, if you just keep things pent up, it's, it's also, it's, it's very bad. It's really bad, right? That's what happens over 10 years of marriage with most people, right? It's just one of those things. Like if you just have open communication and if you disagree, it's good to have those conversations and see why the other person disagrees. But uh, please, uh, funny Bill Belichick, or I'm sorry, Bill Parcells story, please. I would love to have that on the podcast if you don't mind. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's a little bit like being married to the mob. So, it's I just give you a context of the story. By the way, he doesn't even know this, but so I've been work for the guy literally since 2000. So it's been 21 years since I've worked for him. And, you know, I'm very fortunate. I speak to him very frequently and he certainly has seen me on TV. And there was one show get up where it's a two hour show. So it's eight to nine and then nine to 10. And sometimes, depending on the flow of the day, like the story, the the A block of, let's say, the 8 a.m. show is going to be the A block of the 9 a.m. show. That's pretty normal. So it's during the high of the off season. And my role for ESPN is that of obviously a former GM to bring context and sort of bring people behind the curtain of like, here are the issues. Here's what the teams are thinking. And we're, of course, talking about Aaron Rodgers and should they keep him or not. And I had been pretty much along the lines of, you know, a contract's a contract and, you know, he needs to be there because he signed a contract and with that comes rights and liabilities for both sides, blah, blah, blah. Well, for whatever reason, like this one day that we're talking about it, I sort of like slightly, but not completely changed my point of view. And I said something plus or minus to the effect of, you know, like if you're running an organization and someone doesn't want to be there, like you should probably figure out ways for that player not to be there. And, it's between like the 8 and 9 a.m. hour. I look down, look at my phone. I have a text from coach. And he's like, you know, please don't tell anybody that you ever worked for me. Like, I'm embarrassed <laughs> that you would say that. Like, a contract's a contract. And like, I get like this pit in my stomach like I had done something wrong. We get to the 9 o'clock hour. It's the same question. And I am like 180 degrees. I'm like, a contract's a contract. If Aaron Rodgers wants to play football, it's for the Green Bay Packers. And you know, it was funny. Like the show ends at 10. I go in, I say to my wife, I'm like, you know, Michelle, it's like, it's amazing. Like, I feel like I still work for the guy. Like I don't want to let him down. I don't want to disappoint him. You know, his insights and sort of like, you know, his antidotes are like beyond reproach has incredible wisdom. I'm like, Oh my God, like it's been 21 years and I still feel like I still work for him. I was going to say, you sound like, you know, you're, you're still in that, un, in the, you know, that unpaid internship where it's just like you're, you're terrified walking around every quarter. And as you said, if his presence is even there, 
you feel like you need to be there. I think that is an awesome story. Thank you very much for sharing that. I think that is really funny. And it just shows again, like this, you know, younger viewers, right? It's always funny when you when you talk to kids and you're like, oh, you know who John Madden is? And they're like, yeah, the, the game, right? Like it's so many people don't realize that the Bill Parcells tree goes goes so far and so deep and so many people have been touched by this guy in some way, shape or form along the way and don't even realize it. And I think it's awesome that you still have that relationship with him. You're able to talk to him and, and continue that, that, and sometimes, right, that mentor-mentee relationship still. And it's been so, so, so many years since you've even worked for the guy. I think that is just, it's important, right, to the entire sport of football and to the entire NFL. I think that is absolutely fantastic. And so I want to go back to, you becoming, again, the youngest GM ever in the NFL. I think it's fantastic for an organization like the Jets. So there's, check my notes, 32 of these jobs, right? Essentially, there's 32 across the NFL. You're going to take whichever one you get. With the Jets in particular, please be as uh, deep or as shallow as you'd like on this one. It, it's it's one of, right, it's, again, you look at the Browns, an organization of just complete dysfunction. Again, I'm a Mets fan, an organization of complete dysfunction. Not to talk ill of anybody, but... When this job comes up, is there ever like, maybe I could just, you know, wait and do this somewhere else? Maybe I don't have to do this for the Jets and the New York media or or is this just an opportunity that when this comes up, hey, man, I, as you said, nothing mattered for four years for you. Of course, you're going to take this position. How did you kind of grapple with that and wrestle with the opportunity that came about with the Jets? Yeah, I was proud to be there and. You know, the record will show that we were very successful there. I was there 16 years. We went to three championship games, went to the playoffs seven times. So we we were one of the best runs franchises. We had two great owners in Leon Hess and Woody Johnson. And I was really incredibly proud to be the GM of an NFL team in New York. Um, I had a couple of uh, interviews to be GMs at other teams. And I, uh, you know, I would have been sad to leave. And um, we, we accomplished a lot. And um really incredibly proud of what our record is despite the dogmatic reputation that some people have, which I truly believe Michael, it was like a lazy narrative because when you look at the record, it really stood up against almost any other organization. Why do you think that that narrative is there? Is it the New York media? Is it negativity? What what is it? Yeah, it's human nature. You know, it's, it's easy for people to say, well, I'm a long suffering Jeff fan. I'm like, well, check the record. When I was there, there's nothing suffering about winning four playoff games, going to two championship games, going to the playoffs seven times. It was it was actually a great run. Um, probably more about like their own personal failures than it is about the, the Jet franchise. But like for me, I know like what we accomplished. Like so proud of like the men and women I work with and what they've gone on to do. Like great people, great careers made differences in people's lives, great people on the field and Chad Pennington, Lavernius Coles, Curtis Martin, Kevin Mawai, Alan Fanica, Nick Mangold, Brickshaw Ferguson. You know, we're going to have some more future GMs coming up in the next couple of years, minority females. We had a great run. We had a great owner. He's done a lot of things for juvenile diabetes and has the best facility in the NFL. So couldn't be more proud to say I was there and what we accomplished. I think it's incredible. I mean, yeah, obviously, as you said, the record stands for itself. Um, you leave and it kind of goes back to, I guess, that dysfunction a little bit, if I may. Right. We've seen turnover with the Jets now and head coach and GM and many different things, I guess. Is it what is it rooted in? Right. As you said, it's probably more about the, you know, the, the person talking about it, their personal failures as you said but what what is it about sports franchises in general right let's talk about the browns let's talk about the mets that it's just 
constant suffering, what it feels like constant suffering for their fans. And again, people throw the Jets in that category from time to time. Yeah, they sure do. Um, and look, I left there in 2012, so I've been gone for nine years. And uh, it is what it is. Like, you know, a lot of things have happened there. Um, I just feel like when I've been in organizations, you know, we've had really good runs, good records, really proud of like what we've accomplished. And, you know, to the extent you hear the term long suffering, like, uh, you know, nothing I can do about that. You know, I, I'm a positive guy, try to make people around me better, bring energy to a room, to an organization. And when that happens, I really think it's probably more a reflection about them than, than it is anything else. And when you're with a franchise, Michael, I, I think it's just so important. You know, Coach Belichick to this day in Foxborough, they have a sign when you walk out the door, like ignore the noise. And, and that's really what you need to do. You, you need to ignore the noise because a lot of those things like you can't control and it doesn't really matter. You know, um, you just don't want it to seep into the organization. Control what you can control. I completely live by that as well. I'm very positive until it comes to the Mets. Once it comes to the Mets, I'm an extremely, extremely negative, very pessimistic person. But it just keeps happening over and over again. There's literally nothing I can do. Wait, you fooled me once, right? I mean, the Mets have fooled me 100 times at this point. So it's just one of those things. There's really not too much that I can do about it there. Um, I love the NFL draft. Actually, on this show, a couple of my friends, we like deep dive into the first round and really look at it and, and things that we love about it. I love college football. I'm going to be watching it after this. I love the NFL. I'm going to be watching it all day tomorrow. The draft is such a weird, weird time of year, right? Now there's like all this extreme media hype around it. Even back in 2012, it wasn't nearly what it is now. I was at the draft in Cleveland this year. My buddy lives out there, which was an absolute blast. What are some of the things about the draft that we as just the public watching don't know what you as the front office is really getting into and doing on just that daily basis leading up to in and through the draft? Yeah, great question. It, uh, really, it's about things you can't see. So how they learn their intangibles, how they treat others. Um, you know, I saw some teams make catastrophic mistakes in the top 10 because I knew that players either had like trouble learning or there was going to be some other off the field issues. Um, and that there's a lot of things that happen that are like sort of like off field that really impact decision making that, you know, fans probably just don't have a you know, opportunity to see or, or really understand. How do you learn how somebody learns, right? Don't you only have a certain yep. amount of time you can work? So, so like, what are, what are yep. the questions you asking? What are the things you're doing to learn the answer to that? Yeah. So I would tell you like one of the things that I've learned in my career, no pun intended, is like the power and the importance of a specialist. So for example, like I'm with ESPN, I have a broadcast coach. And we review my tapes like all the time, like in like painful ways. Like he, he eviscerates me, you know, like my posture, you know, how I dress my pockets where if I use filler words, he finds me for using filler words. I have a public speaking coach. Yeah. I have a public speaking coach. Someone that helps me speak better to be a better storyteller. Um, There are people that are world-class at assessing how people learn. And when you're making multi-million dollar decisions, you want to bring those people in to give you the answers. Um, There's a lot of ways I feel like I'm excellent about assessing character. Like I think truly who you are in life is how you treat people that can't help you the way or the waitress, the driver, that's who you really are. Um, So I'm very confident about that. And I have a really good process about collecting information, asking people certain questions. 
but as it relates to like very scientific things like data processing type of learner they are you can hire people that can give you incredible actionable information i love that that is absolutely fantastic so reach out to the experts get the information from them and repeat that sounds like a pretty easy process i like that I, i'm sure you have a much more specific process than that as you said but I think those are some pretty important parts to that. So um, again, like to be positive. So who are some of the, not the draft busts, we don't need to go over that, but who are some of the diamonds in the rough that you found, right? As, as an NFL fan, knowing really the, the roster is made from fourth round on, right? The first round, yeah, you'll get your quarterback. Yeah. Second, third round is very important. But who are some of those diamonds in the rough that you found that you're extremely proud of? And when someone asks that question, you point to these three guys over your tenure as, at, the, at the Jets. So one of the first players I signed when I became the pro personnel director was a guy named James Durth. He was a former quarterback in college at Tarleton State. And of all things, we wanted him to be – he was a tight end, but we wanted him to be a long snapper. And he was on the Tennessee Titan practice squad the whole year. And typically when you're on another team's practice squad, you sign with them. But at the end of the year, we were able to recruit him to the Jets. And he actually got a job at Home Depot. We were on uh, – at the time, the Jets facility was in Long Island on Hempstead Turnpike. And about two miles down the road – there was a Home Depot and he worked there and he wound up having like a 10 plus year career. And I just think about like what an unbelievable guy James Durth is like what a self-made guy. Um, you know, there's so many of them like Lavernius Coles is another one. Um, good people make mistakes. He made a mistake at Florida state. His draft stock went down in the third round. We were able to get him 10 year career. Um, went through a lot of things early in his life inspiring person incredible human being um there's you know so so many of them uh th those are a couple i mean i could go on and on all day about it. i'm sure and i would listen to you all day but i totally understand where you're coming from and i guess i'm, I'm kind of curious from that gm perspective right there's a lot of tough decisions if anyone that's watched hard knocks if anyone's watched um whatever that show on Amazon is I, all or nothing. I think it is right. There, there are a lot of tough decisions that goes into keeping a player, signing a player, not giving the player the amount of money they want, cutting a player. How, how do you get, you know, again, going back to the original question, there's a lot of winners and losers and you're kind of playing God for lack of a better term in some of these situations. I'm sure there's a lot of other people that are involved too, but what is that? That just has to be such a gut wrenching thing to walk up to a player and, sit them down and say, Hey man, this isn't going to work out. Do you ever get used to that? Or is that something that to this day, you can still remember those feelings and what, what you went through those days. So there's a, a hall of fame writer for the longtime Boston globe baseball, right? guy named Peter Gammons. Mm -hmm. And uh, when he went into Cooperstown, he had a great line. He said, as a professional, I have to respect everybody that I deal with. That's one of my responsibilities as a professional writer. As a human being, I have the right, to like some more than others. And so on anytime we had like cut down day, I always said to the staff, I'm like, look, we have a professional responsibility. Like we have to go from whatever it is, get 90 players to 53. But as human beings, there's something wrong with us. If we're not like not feeling you know, weird about today and like feeling bad, like that's, it's hard. And look, in my career, a couple different times, I've been on both sides of the conversation either side it's not good it's not easy so it is sort of like part of what comes with the territory um and it's not it's one of the worst days on the job for sure yeah i can't imagine what that's like that's just you know again kind of not taking but 
hurting someone's dream, right? As you said, you had those four years. If someone walked up to you after those four years of being in the building every day, and was like, Mike, it's not going to work out. I can only imagine what you would have went through. Thankfully, it didn't work out that way. Uh, and you're doing your thing. And, and I guess on that note, going to the draft, cut down day, signing, you know, incredible free agents to come on the team. As the GM, what is that, you know, disagreeing with scouts, disagreeing with other people in the building, is there like a, a pie chart that says, okay, I'm 50% of the vote and these people are the other 50% of the vote? How do you work through those disagreements and come to an eventual conclusion? And if you have a specific story, I think that would be, you know, even even better. But I'm sure that happens constantly uh, in an NFL front office. Yeah, we, we took a sign for Cleveland Indians front office uh, that we, we had in our draft room, which it said, uh, big sign in our draft room, in God we trust, for everybody else we need data. And so basically, we would just use data to break ties, and 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 data, you know, purposely was ambiguous. Like, let's watch a little bit more film. Let's call one more scout. Let's or source. Let's look at more stats. Like, let's keep going, and let's have disagreements. And you know, a lot of the disagreements you can have, like, you know, if we're sitting here, we're putting our board together, and we're looking at third round wide receivers, for example. You're going to stack the board. 99% of the time that decision is made for you. So if you have it receiver A, B, and C, many times like A and C may be off the board by the time you're in the third round. It you know, so those things are sort of like a lot of a lot of those decisions are sort of like resolved. And then you gotta sit there and say, like, do we need the receiver or the defensive end? And in those situations, like it's just more importantly if we like sort of like talk it through and say, okay, like what, you know, what are we doing and why? And, 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 and kind of. And on, on the free agent front, right now you're in, rather than investing a couple million dollars in a third round receiver. Now you're investing tens of million dollars, millions of dollars in a potential free agent. How do you then have those discussions again? Because now the weight is extremely more important. As you know, the salary cap is is finite. It's extremely important to use it efficiently. I, I think using your words from before, how do you then have those types of discussions? Because I could see that being even more important to the franchise. Yeah. I, again, I always felt like to I, like when you're making other sort of like decisions, I feel like you're sitting there between like the head coach and the owner and you're playing point guard. So it's like, I always felt like, you know, I, I found that part of the job to be pretty easy to be candid. Like I know people like make a lot of it and get stressed that, that part, like for whatever reason, like was really easy for me because if we were working together, like I, I was on a whiteboard, like here, here it is. Like if we want to sign Chad Pennington and pay him at the time, 8 million a year, like these three guys are going to graduate and we're going to, you know, our starting left guards are going to be in the second round of the draft next year. Like, are we good with that? Yeah, we can't let Chad Pennington graduate. Like he's our starting quarterback. Or hey, we're gonna trade for Brett Favre, or we're gonna go get Santonio San Holt, whatever it may be. And like it's gonna cost us a fourth round pick. Well, okay. If we're here's what's gonna happen. Like it's A, B, and C, and here's what we can do. Are we good? Yes or no? And you know, like when you do it that way, like again, going back to Coach Parcells, Michael, it like it just takes the gray out. Like there's no bullshit. Like hey, our starting guard is going to be young. So, you know, like, hey, Mr. Owner, you know, Steve Ross, Woody Johnson, like on opening day, that left guard's going to give up a sack and we're going to be pissed at him. But because of that, we have this, this, and this. Are we good? 
Uh, that's the best way. I mean, yeah, as again, if you can break it down that simply, and as you said, use the data to your advantage. Data is very interesting because you can kind of skew it when you want it, but that's neither here nor there. That's another conversation, I think, for some some analysts and some data people. Um, after leaving the Jets, did you what? What? Tell me about that. Right? Everyone talks about how you're the GM of the Jets, youngest ever. I think that's incredible. What happened after you left the Jets? Yeah, a lot, a lot of mixed feelings. You know, it was it was time. Clearly, like, you know, it has a, a shelf life. Um, that decision was made for me, but in hindsight, it, it was totally fair and appropriate and timely and felt really good about what I had done there. I've been in one place for 16 years. Um, and I felt like for me, it was, um, I kind of looked to my left and right and said, you know, like, great run wouldn't change the world wouldn't change it literally for anything like nobody's luckier than me but that's not to say it was perfect and i thought to myself there was something in the back of my mind i couldn't walk away from which was you know like if i had spent 16 years at a law firm i'd be a partner and i have some equity and nobody could fire me i was like you know like i don't know if i want to get fired again so i'm gonna you know start something so i started coaching representation business and I was so lucky, like so lucky. I got to represent Steve Kerr and Dan Quinn and people that were way smarter and better than me. And I, it was a thrill and learned so much. And in the 2015 NBA Finals, the Cleveland Cavaliers were playing the Golden State Warriors and uh, David Blatt and Steve Kerr were the head coaches. And I was the agent for both of them. And it was such a really cool experience. Uh, really, really enjoyed it. What was it about coaches that made you – a lot of people would assume you'd go and be a GM for players. Why did you pick coaches? Um, I, I just felt like they were, I wanted to surround with people that were like smarter than me and I wanted to keep learning. And, you know, you spend five minutes with Steve Kerr, you, you, you'd really know the answer to that question. You know, like guys, one of the greatest people in truly like when you look at what he's done and his story and his father being assassinated and, everything he's done to impact our society. Like there, there's few that are better than Steve Kerr. Yeah. That story. I remember hearing, um, I remember it and then remember hearing a lot about it, uh, uh, during the last dance, uh, last year when everyone was watching that, I remember, I didn't realize it was as impactful as it was, which is incredible. So you're at ESPN now. So entrepreneur, now you're at ESPN. Why you used to hear those people talk about you all the time. What, what made you want to go on to ESPN be a, uh, you know, an analyst talk about your side of the business. I'm sure there's other things you could have done. What was it about this that you said, you know what, let's, let's do this. This sounds like fun. Uh, it's a great platform. Um, I'm around people that are really smart at football that when they talk, like I listen, you know, Dominic Foxworth, Ryan Clark, Dan Orlovsky, like really smart, credible guys that when they speak, I, I like, I really try to learn and listen, you know, sitting like on a set with Mike Greenberg, like, I told him this before. I don't mean to embarrass him, but like as good as Bill Belichick and Bill Parcells, you know, were they, like he he's that like in the world of broadcasting. Like he, it, it's it's amazing what he can do. Um, and then it, you know, when Bill Pullian retired and I got the opportunity, I, it was like you know again going back to uh, competition. I wanted to take what Bill Pullian did at ESPN and crush it. Like I wanted to double it and triple it and make it better, make it more prominent and more. Uh, necessary. So like I've worked really hard and like I revere Bill, like Bill is a friend, somewhat of a mentor. 
and I just you know wanted to take the opportunity and grow the role to the extent that I could. Yeah, I think it's it's really important to have that type of insight too, right? Like most people are always you know, don't look at a story from all the sides. And I think that's really important. I think that's where your insight does on ESPN specifically, right? You're not a former player, you're a former GM. So you have a different insight than someone like Dan Orlovsky is going to have. And I think that that part's very important. And it just adds context to everything that's happening to the sport that, man, do we love it here in America? Yeah, and I love frustrating Orlovsky because I'm right and he's wrong. And sometimes nice. he realizes it's like sooner than later. We, we, we have a lot of fun. So he's, uh, he's a very passionate, opinionated guy um, who's really smart very and smart. really yeah and very insightful very articulate and um i've had a lot of laughs with him you know he puts a smile on my face and um he's a guy that like he's a rare guy like i would just he, he has like a lot of wisdom about people and teams football and life and um you know there's just people like you don't get to be like sam Acho, you know like a couple of weeks ago you know we're in the same hotel and Bristol, Connecticut. And, you know, I get to sit down with a guy like Sam and hear his story. And he wrote a book and, you know, fascinating guy. And, you know, those are things I really enjoy, like getting out of my comfort zone and learning about other people's stories and what motivates them. And, you know, being at ESPN with such disparate uh, people, it's great. Like I'm on this morning show with Keyshawn, you know, I was with Keyshawn a hundred years ago at the Jets, you know, Jay Williams, really interesting guy and now you know max kellerman and all his wisdom you know again they, they challenge you and I, and I like that like i like to be engaged debate you know by people that are smart and hot character and hardworking. yes surround yourself with smart people usually you get a little bit smarter that way i love it mike mike this yeah. has been absolutely incredible i think my time is just about up uh just the last couple questions i mean where can everybody follow you online and does that book still exist that you wrote uh 30 years ago, 40 years. No, I'm kidding. Does that book still exist? And where can we find it if it does? Yeah. So best place is Real Tannenbaum, uh, Twitter, Instagram, uh, 3013, do a lot of stuff there, obviously ESPN. And yeah, that book was really like more of a private thing that I sent to team. So never, never really published. So um, I, I probably have a copy around here somewhere, but it's, uh, I think it's more about the principle though, about creating value. And, and again, you know, when you're in front of somebody, like what can you do to help them? Yes. And, and you said something when you wrote that book that I, I wrote it in my notes and we kind of just got off of it. So this is my last point. You said you got really lucky. Not too many lucky people write a book and then specifically send it to the 32 franchises that they want to work for. That does not sound like luck. That sounds like a lot of hard work and a lot of smart hard work that you did. So don't don't consider yourself lucky. You did. You deserve uh, everything you got. So, Mike, sincerely, sincerely appreciate your time today, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been awesome. Really appreciate it. And uh, I, I like your podcast and keep rolling. Appreciate it, man. Thank you.